Hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, at the age of 24, I was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. Since then, I have been on a journey full of challenges, which has led me to ask the question, how do we face up to the challenges in our lives? To help me answer this question, each week I learn from different guests how they faced up to the challenges in their own lives, and perhaps even how they led to opportunities. I hope that by listening, you will be better able to face up to the challenges in your lives so you can live your best life today. My guest this week is the Canadian Ryan Pyle, who is joining us from Istanbul. Ryan is an award-winning and world record-breaking adventure and expedition presenter and producer. He's made stuff for the BBC, National Geographic, the Discovery Channel, and his shows include uh, Tough Rides, where he's been in China, India, Brazil, and his Extreme Treks series, which has taken him all around the world. He spends much of his year, probably most of it, um, out traveling, on the road, filming and having adventures. And to me, he seems like he's living the dream. What I've already discovered since I started the Bristol to Beijing cycle ride, and I was like, right, I'm going to film all of this. I'm going to turn it into an adventure documentary. I've discovered it is a lot of work. And so I'm really excited to talk to Ryan a little bit later about some of the challenges that he has faced as a television presenter and producer. There are a couple of other challenges that I think we're going to discuss today. And one of them is how you had to restart your career after the financial crisis of 2008. But first, I thought we could start by going back to a, to a different dream of yours and a different challenge and that is when you played basketball, University of Toronto, wanting to go pro. So, Ryan, thanks very much for joining Facing Up. It's great to have you. Thank you very much for having me. So, you've come a hell of a long way from your now producing these top flight adventure documentaries. But you started off, I think I'm right in saying, wanting to be a professional basketball player, right? Yeah, I think, you know, every North American kid wants to grow up playing baseball, American football or basketball. And just like every probably kid in the UK wants to grow up playing, you know, top flight football, uh, perhaps. Uh, that's kind of the dream. So, you know, when I was young, I got to watch, you know, great basketball stars like Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and and got inspired by them and uh, and had the dream of maybe playing professional basketball someday. But like 99.9% of these journeys, they ended up in not playing professional basketball. Um, right. But, you know, my sporting career was fantastic. And um, it kind of ingrained so many good qualities, uh, you know, about just leadership and hard work, work ethic, working as a team. Um, punctuality, you know, uh, just things that people don't necessarily have a grasp on as adults sometimes. And it just, I just feel it's uh, really helped me with my work and my business and, uh, and of course, my adventuring. Right. Okay. Um, I, something I can relate to having done a year of rowing, like the importance of like showing up on time. And if, if everyone shows up on time, you, you get the boat out and you have a good training session. And if everyone turns up a little bit late, then, you know, you, you waste so much time. 
the momentum dies very quickly right. when uh, when people are are lazy or uh, or not showing up on time. So it's really important. Yeah, just keeps everyone moving in the same direction and keeps the positive energy flowing because uh, you can lose it very quickly. Yeah, I think that's right, isn't it? I I was wondering, um, your your father played um, or was an Olympic Olympian, right? Yep, that's correct. Polo? He was a uh, yeah, water polo in 1972 Olympics in Munich, Germany. So he was uh, he represented Canada, uh, which was amazing. And uh, it's great when he gets together with his old water polo buddies that he was with because they obviously have some great stories. I was wondering if that made it particularly difficult abandoning, uh, or maybe abandoning is quite a strong word, but mo- moving away from your dream of playing basketball. Whether there are any expectations that you'd put on yourself or that you had in, in your family? Uh, I really wanted to be an Olympian. Like, obviously, I was incredibly proud of my father and what he accomplished. And that was definitely one of my goals is to represent my country. And, um, and my dad was great. You know, he got me swimming at a very early age. I even played water polo for a time period. Um, but, you know, I just never gravitated enough to to me loving it and then uh, I picked up a basketball and loved it and he just supported me my mother and and he supported me um incredibly you know with my basketball career and um and yeah I always did want to follow in his footsteps and and play for team Canada I thought that would have been amazing uh, but it just wasn't meant to be and and I think I think that uh you know it was devastating you know to have your career end. You know, I mean, everyone's career ends um, at different stages. A lot of people's, you know, they, they, they don't get to play in university at all. And I was mm. very fortunate enough to play in university. And then I wasn't able to go beyond that. And the problem is, is that I think so much of your identity at a young age is wrapped up in sport when you are a young athlete and playing at a high level. And when so much of your identity is wrapped up in, in one thing, and then that one thing is gone, it's really dangerous. And I suffered, like I was very depressed for a while. And that's actually one of the reasons why I went to China, because I just wanted to kind of create a whole new world for myself. And, uh, and I did that. I, that was, that was probably one of the reasons why I did that. And if I had maybe played for the national team, or if I had had the chance to play professional, maybe in Europe or something, uh, there's a pro league in Europe, then maybe I would have postponed that or never done that. And in which case I wouldn't be here today talking to you. Wow. So, um, actually, you know, cause you, you graduated and then you went to China. You're saying that actually going to China was in some way you trying to form a new identity. Cause it hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. hundred percent. Cause like, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to stay in Toronto, Canada where I had grown up and where I had played basketball. Um, you know, I, I really just felt like I needed to get away and, and find something that, for myself that was mine. Um, and, uh, and I, I don't know, I just, I just needed like a clean start and I just wanted to see something different and do something different. And I was surrounded, uh, you know, I was very lucky in university. I had very good summer jobs that paid well and I always had a little bit of extra money around and I was always able to travel a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, and when I graduated, I, I, I just went to China cause I just needed to like clean my slate, you know, just, uh, emotionally empty myself out and fill it back up with something new. And that was what travel did for me. Right. Okay. That, that is so interesting because um, I, I think so many, I mean, a lot of people, uh, a lot of my friends, you know, graduated from university. That wasn't so long ago um, but for me and a lot of my friends. And it's very difficult to know 
what you want to do, what the next stage is. You know, uh, some friends were like you, like very much into sport. I think I was one of those people. I did, did a lot of triathlon. And it is quite difficult to know where to go next. And I think for a lot of people my age, um, and I, I went to the University of Durham, you know, a lot of people go to London, go to work for the big four, PwC, EY, the rest of the big accountancy firms. I found it incredibly um, important to go traveling and to see what else was out there. And it sounds like that was something that really helped you as well. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's why we hit it off because our first conversation was a private conversation. Right. Uh, we had a phone call a few, you know, a few months ago now uh, when I first arrived in Istanbul. And I sensed that from you right away. And, and I think... You know, I think it's really good for people to take gap years uh, between high school and university. And I also think it's really good for people to take a year off of university uh, after university and just travel because I think you just learn so much about yourself when you're away from home. And I think you grow up and you mature and you have a much greater sense of who you are and what you want. And when you give yourself that time to think and then you do come back into your normal life or your real life then you're, um, I think you're a much better person and a, and a much more complete person. And, uh, and I believe it'll help you with your direction and your focus and, uh, and your desire of, of being, you know, just achieving what you want to achieve, I think. I would completely agree there. I think the, the, the time out to reflect back on on yourself and like, uh, you know, what you want from life. It's so easy. And actually it's a very scary thing, I think, to stop and go, wait, this, you know, if you've got a clear direction that someone has given to you and whether that's, you know, your university or an employer or your parents, it's very easy just to like channel for that because um, it gives a lot of meaning in, in, your, in your life. But to actually take that step back and, you know, actually I think maybe now during, you know, coronavirus, COVID, we've, a lot of people have had to sort of pause it's something I've, even though I've taken years traveling, I've, um, you know, got into reading some texts that have like really sort of made me stop and think, oh, what direction do I want to go in? And I think it's such a, as you say, how to round, how to round yourself out, how to work out what at the end of your life will make you glad that you'd live the one that you did live in the end. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've always been someone who, you know, puts more weight on experiences versus material goods. And, and I think that's one of the things that travel has taught me is, you know, the, the memories and the people I meet and the things I get to do are, are ultimately who I am and not what you own. And, and uh, I'm lucky that I get to make television shows about that. And those television shows kind of lock that memory uh, in place for me. And I can go back and watch the shows and people can share and enjoy, you know, the things that I've had the chance to do. But but it definitely has helped me identify like who I am and what I want and, and, and help me kind of uh, see the world and where I fit in it much more clearly. Mm. I think um, it's something I've come to realize over the past two years of um, aiming to live a life rich in experiences above all else. And money, I'd be interested in your take on this, but I, I feel money is, is useful but only as a means to live experiences and then also negotiate or overcome barriers that then prevent you from, or make it, you know, 
making it easier to go out and travel or whatever. Money is very important. Like we don't have to, you know, we shouldn't make, you know, false claims. You know, we do have to eat. We do need a roof over our heads. But uh, I think you're right. Money as a way, you know, earning money as a way to further, um, you know, the richness of your experiences, I think is, is, is a great way to live. Um, and I think that, you know, if you can, if you can make content along the way, uh, and share that content and inspire other people, then, you know, even better. Right. And that's what you did, isn't it? When you, when you moved out to China, you, you weren't planning to stay there, but you ended up making a career out there. Yeah. So I went to China my first time for, uh, three months and I, I went, as a backpacker, I just had a backpack. I had a little Canadian flag on it and you know, the whole thing. And, uh, I was going to go for three months and then just come back to Toronto and, uh, get a job and live my life out. And I was just so amazed by what China had to offer and what travel had to offer that, um, that I decided I just wanted to stay, uh, in China. So what I did was I actually went back, I did my three month trip. It was amazing. And then I went back to Toronto, told my family I was moving to China, and then I moved to, to China. And that was, um, that was the start of it. And then it's funny, you know, one of the things that happens to you when you are a student athlete or a young athlete is uh, you don't grow up a very well-rounded person. Mm-hmm. You, um, you know, you're so focused on sports, you don't have any other interests. And I was very much the same way. And once my sporting career was gone, then I started realizing like I loved writing and I loved photography and I loved learning about other people. Like I was too busy all the time and too tired to care really about anyone else, uh, you know, apart from my teammates and my coach. Yeah. And the, you know, and then now all of a sudden I, I could, you know, just walk down streets endlessly and chat with people and, and stop in at, you know, tea cafes and, and noodle shops and whatever. And I just had all this time and energy to meet and connect with new people. And, um, and that was the that was it. I mean, that was the version of myself I liked the best. And I was just like, I need to figure out how to be this version of me every day. And then I I just worked at trying to make a career out of it. I'm really interested by this. You know, you're saying that you're you weren't that well rounded. You'd just been sporty. Um, did it then feel like intimidating or a big challenge to? create this Ryan Pyle who was well-rounded. I could feel that, you know, coming from background where you're like, Christ, I don't know how to, uh, I don't know how to ride. I don't know how to take photos. I don't even know how to talk to people maybe. And, and then suddenly it could, it seems like it could almost be intimidating. Is that how you saw it? How no. did you see it? So I've always been, I've always been a pretty confident person. I think the sporting background has helped with that. So uh, I was always like, I will figure this out. I will make a career out of this. Mm-hmm. I will get the hang of how to do this. And, um, and I never, I never really had a lot of self doubt, uh, t- you know, transitioning to television was definitely harder, right? Um, only because television's more expensive and, and, uh, it's more of like an elite group of people that make it. And it's a little bit smaller, cir- smaller circle of, of people. Um, but that was maybe a harder transition, but the, you know, going to China and making a living writing and doing photography um, was, it was a challenge for sure, but it was definitely something I thought I could do and, and, and eventually got through and, and did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have a question which reflects more on me um, than, than the subject of the question, but um, a, 
preconception that I have of China and the Chinese, and I am so aware of how bad this sounds, but I'm going to ask it anyway because because um, it's on my mind, um, and maybe it's on other people's minds too. In the UK, um, my general the, the, the general way I see Chinese people. Um, comes, you know, at, at university, there's you know, a group of Chinese people who tend to be quite self-contained, uh, tend to be talking in, in Mandarin, uh, often, you know, tourists um, taking, you know, I don't know, if, if you're in Oxford or Cambridge, taking lots of photos. Um, and I'm aware, but I don't really know to what extent, you know, that that is such a tiny snapshot of what it, you know, it's, it's not even really a snapshot of like what China is about, but it certainly affected the way I see Chinese people. And I'm not proud to say this, but I'm now wanting to understand better. Can you tell me um, what you love most about China and interacting with, with the people that you've had ample opportunity to, to talk with throughout China? Yeah, you know, I think the Chinese tourists when they go abroad are pretty terrible. Like, I think we can all agree with that. And and before the Chinese tourists had had money to spend, it was the Japanese tourists. You know, they okay. were the ones that were going to America and going all around in the seventies and the eighties, and then and then you know in the two thousands it was the Chinese and their big tour groups and taking snapshots and you know, uh, yeah, it's just the way it's just the cycle of life. But but I think the the one thing that you can't do is let that, you know, those people who go abroad uh, affect, you know, your vision of what that country actually is. And, and sadly, that happens with everyone, I think, you know, you meet a Canadian, you like him or her, and then you think Canada is great, you know, you have a bad experience, and then it taints all Canadians for the rest of your life. So <laughs> yeah. this is, you know, this is how we build stereotypes. And this is how racism begins and right. And, uh, yeah, and and thrives. But so you're gonna for me, steer well clear of the United Kingdom from now on, right? Yeah, exactly. Dodgy guys like you. But it's, uh, but you know, China is, is an incredible country. And the one thing, the, the thing that I was drawn to most is that I just didn't know much about it. So in university, I ended up taking a course in my second year of university. And, um, and it was called like introduction to modern China. And that was like the first time I knew anything about China. And, uh, and I love that course. And then I took another course the next year. And then by the time I graduated, I was like, well, I got to go see this country because it's magnificent. And, and, you know, the history is so deep and complex uh, and challenging, especially in the last like hundred years or so, uh, very turbulent. And then, but also too, you have this incredible diversity in China. You know, the Western regions and the Southern regions are totally different than the Northern regions. Um, people think Chinese people are all just like one group of people, but there's actually massive um, diversity within the country and, and the landscapes and the history and the architecture are all pretty, pretty remarkable. And I would say that, you know, you could, you could argue that within, as within one country's kind of internationally recognized borders, you, you would struggle to find as much diversity in any other country as you do in China, just with regards to like ethnicities, religion, landscapes, ar architecture. I mean, you can you can travel like a hundred kilometers, and and then be in like a totally different world uh, where people don't even speak the same dialect or the language of where they were before. So, you know, this vision of what we all in the Western world see of China, of like Beijing and Shanghai, this is, these those are just two cities out of like a hundred cities that have more than a million people. So it's uh, 
It's re- it's remarkable, and 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 for sixteen years, I I called Shanghai home, and mm-hmm. I loved it, and uh, I never got tired of filming in China, and I never got tired of exploring China. Um, but um, uh, more of my work now is international, so it was easier to operate from outside of China. Okay, yeah. Um, as as you know, and, and as many listeners will know, I I was en route to Beijing on on my bicycle. Uh, could you give me a a top travel tip for for china and your your favorite place that i should be going through preferably not like a kind of cliched place as well yeah i think uh i think your top you know your top tip for china is just go with an open mind um and try not to let all the things you read in the news um taint your vision of of what you're seeing when you're there and and uh and my favorite part of china uh and sadly it's an area of china that you know has, has been in the news for all the wrong reasons, but is the Silk Road. So that Western part of China that goes from Kashgar, um, you know, through the desert uh, to Xi'an, uh, which was the imperial capital of China, that, that those, what, 5,000, 3,000, 4,000 kilometers, um, the small villages you go through, the small towns you go through, the sections of the Great Wall you pass, they're all spectacular, and and I really love that part of the journey. That's where the romance of the Silk Road and the history and the Great Game and it all kind of ties in together. And yes, um, you, you you see the influences from you know not just uh, China, but you're going to be seeing you know mosques, and you're going to have that in, influx of uh, probably kebabs, and you would know better than me. But the you know it's a uh, a melting pot of different cultures along that route. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it was lovely. And also too, I spent a lot of time in Tibet. Like we did our motorcycle tour, Tough Rides China, that television show through Tibet. We did a huge section through Tibet. And then I filmed the uh, extreme trek sacred mountains in Tibet as well. So we did, we did all these sacred mountains, uh, with pilgrims alongside them. And that was incredible. So, you know, there's, there's just so much going on there, uh, beyond just the big cities. And, uh, and I, I think to this day, I, I still f- feel it's probably one of my favorite countries to film in just because there's so much that can be done in one one country and how's your mandarin no not very good so even though i was there for 16 years uh i definitely struggled uh with the language uh probably got to like a lower intermediate or an intermediate level okay by the time i left and i should have been well advanced but uh <laughs> never really put in the time or the energy sadly so it's uh it was always right. difficult and it's interesting as well. You're talking about, um, you know, being being in Tibet, being in the you know, Xinjiang province, which has, as you mentioned, been in the news for plenty of rather um, sad, very sad reasons. Um, you worked as as a journalist, taking you know, d- doing photography. I think for like you know, uh, South China Morning Post, other publications, New York, um, New York Times, Wall Street Journey, Journal. Did you face challenges of like um, the restrictions of what you could report on? Because I'm guessing, you know, because you were in Tibet, um, which I don't think is nearly so straightforward these days. Um, if you're probably trying to report on things happening in Xiang, um, Xinjiang province now, yeah. that would be difficult. Was it a different time or were there challenges still that you had to negotiate? It was a different time when I was working. So I, I worked kind of as a a photographer mainly, but also sometimes a writer for various publications, uh, mostly American travel publications where I did a lot of writing. And then the the more uh, intense journalist publications like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, 
um, they were mo- mainly just photography. And yeah, we, we always had restrictions and uh, it was always hard to report on places. And China's always had this kind of cat and mouse game with the media where, you know, they want to keep things hidden or under wraps. And then all of a sudden there's some expose, you know, it's just part of their culture, sadly. This is probably one of the, you know, the worst parts of, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, when you think about it, has done so much for the, you know, since the 1980s for lifting people out of poverty um, and building a middle class in China. And of course, lots of people have been left behind and it hasn't been fair and there's been lots of corruption. Yes, but it has been also the greatest rise of people out of poverty that our world has ever seen. And, but the one thing that's, that's kind of grown up with that is this, is this, you know, fear of truth. And, you know, we saw it, we saw it in, um, you know, with what happened in Wuhan and this whole virus thing about trying to suppress what's really going on. And uh, instead of being more transparent, and it's, uh, that's always been a problem, even in 2002 and 2003, when we were working, you know, when, when something was kind of happening that no one wanted anyone else to know about it. And, and but actually knowing about it helps solve the problem. Um, so it's just, it's, you know, it's, <laughs> there's lots of, chases and uh, detaining getting detained and all kinds of stories like that that happened over the years so those that, that was kind of a regular um for that job at that time and that presumably did not put you off <laughs> i i mean i kind of enjoyed it like you know it, you do get tired of it after a while and actually that was part of my transition into television like i just got tired of the cat and mouse game and I also got tired of the international media's take on China. I just felt like it was overly negative all the time. And I just, I got, I, and, and even if there's like the stories were factually correct, but it was just the, the, the eye of the editors and the eye of the writers was just always looking for the negative. And, and I was always there too, doing all this negative stuff. And I guess it's easy because there's more negative stuff probably than, than there was happening positive stuff, but the positive stuff was never being reported on. So I got really just tired of journalism in general um, right. because I felt like that was a negativity trend that was starting then. And it's actually, you still see it today, you know, negative stuff leads and more people spend time watching it. And it's actually probably depressing the entire globe. Yeah. I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to make happy stories. Like I just got tired of just all the negativity. So I stopped working in, in journalism and stuff like that. And I just wanted to make, television shows that people could that didn't deal with politics and that didn't deal with all the bullshit and that just people could like people get bombarded by that crap all day long in the news media like you cannot escape it and then i want people to be able to come home at like 9 p.m and turn on one of my shows and just drift into a world where none of that exists and that's what i that was my goal in making my television shows is just kind of creating an alternate travel universe where people don't have to deal with all the news that they that they consume on a daily basis. And when, I'm a much happier person because of that. I think that's really it, interesting uh, because one of the conclusions I've come to myself is that life is a matter of perspective. Um, that in, in the world, there's a huge amount of good and there's a huge amount of bad. And in any scene, I, I, I likened it, I, I had this realization if you will like in in interlaken when i was in in, in switzerland you know beautiful place with um snow-capped mountains beautiful river lake um and you know I, I was looking out and there's a scene and like i 
I can choose to focus on the mountains and I can choose to focus on the lake, or I can choose to focus on the rubbish bin and there's a couple of bits of litter in the street. Um, and I feel in some ways like life is like that to an extent. You know, I think it's important that we're aware that all of this exists, but what we choose to take in as our influences, I suppose, and what we choose to, um, I don't know, em embrace. Uh, you know, I think there are some really, really positive things in life. And yet, you know, there's, there's plenty enough that we can focus and be negative and be, be depressed because of everything that we see. So I think it, it's really interesting that you're trying to capture some of the good things, I suppose. Well, yeah. I mean, I just decided, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the New York Times does a good job of reporting the news. Uh, I didn't want to be in that game because they're really good at it. And I didn't want to compete with them. So I'm just going to travel the world and meet cool people and, and have amazing adventures and eat nice food with them. And, and, uh, and just, you know, take people to an alternative universe. And uh, that was kind of always the idea. Right. And, and maybe in some other show I make in the future, I'll talk politics with people and I'll sit down and chat with them or, and that might be a part of some other show that I do, but, and I'm okay with that. But, uh, you know, at the moment, these travel shows I do, I, I really want people to escape. And, and I just actually, I did an interview earlier today and, uh, and it was with someone from Hong Kong and, you know, Hong Kong has had a, a really difficult time the last year or so because they've had some protests and they had this coronavirus and now they're having some protests again. And this, this, this woman that I was speaking to, um, and she's known my work and followed me for a long time. She's just like, your show is just getting me through all of this. She's just like, I wait for it every week at 8 p.m. And oh, it's wow. just like my, it's just like my escape from the chaos of what's going on in our city. And, 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 uh, and I was like, that's, exactly why I make it because the world is a really, really hard place and I don't want to make a living making it harder. Um, and I just kind of came to that realization, like, is it responsible? I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm avoiding showing the garbage can, you know, next to the road in Interlochen with the mountains. But, but at the same time, maybe I'm keeping people away from, you know, losing their minds slowly, or I'm giving people some hope that there's something better out there. And, um, and I, I just walked away from journalism altogether. And, I, and it's funny, you know, I still comment politically on things and I have a podcast, which I, you know, I talk about things all the time and I have a degree in politics and international politics. So I have a lot of opinions about what's going on, right? I don't want to bring them into some of those travel shows just because I just want to keep it a pristine place for people's minds to go. So this is, this is really interesting. Um, because it's something that I've struggled with quite a lot. When I started cycling from Bristol to Beijing, wanting to make some sort of travel documentary, realizing that when, when you're filming, um, you're not really filming real life. You're trying to kind of, often you're trying to capture the spirit of a moment, but that means constructing everything that happens to try and condense what happens in, say, for, for over across a day into sort of like 10 seconds or two minutes of like, so you're kind of playing with the truth a bit. And I'm really interested to what extent you feel um, you are portraying real life, whatever that means, um, sure. in, through, through your programs. Well, I think we don't, I mean, 
we film in really remote places. So whatever happens out there, we film and, and whatever happens out there, we, we do make, you know, the story uh, from what we film, what, what we, what we don't do. And it's funny because people talk about this all the time. So I filmed an episode in Tibet mm. and we did a mountain. We trekked around a mountain at like 5,000 meters with a whole bunch of pilgrims. Mm. And, and we made the story about the mountain and about the local pilgrims. And people were like, well, how come you didn't talk about the police? And it's like, because we didn't see any police. And it's like, how come you didn't talk about like government restrictions and, and, you know, the government making lives difficult for the people? It's because like, they weren't on the mountain. Like, we, like, there was no government interference on the mountain. There were no police. There were no checkpoints. There was nothing because we were at 16,000 feet, you know, 5,000 meters above sea level in the middle of nowhere, you know, in snowstorms. Uh, with local people who were much less well-dressed than us and who were just trucking along because this is part of their religion and this is part of how they cleanse their soul. And that's what the story was. Mm. And I just didn't want to muddy, I just didn't want to muddy it talking about a whole bunch of political stuff that wasn't actually happening in front of us. You know, if, if something happens in front of you, mm. you film it, you talk about it, but we're, we never go out of our way looking for that stuff. And, and, and that's because we want to try to, um, you know, do justice to the story where we are at that moment. And, and again, it's, these are travel journeys, travel, you know, travel journals. Um, uh, and yeah, so that was kind of the, the line we tried to draw in, in what we wanted the show to be. This is, I'm talking about extreme treks and expedition Asia specifically and tough rides to an, an extent, but mm. I just think that you can get, you can get yourself way out of whack if you just try to do everything. Um, right. You know, if, if you try to be a political commentator, if you try to be an economic commentator, if you try to be a travel commentator, yeah. if you try to be like a gender, you know, where are the gender biases, like, you know, commentator and, uh, you can really, then where's the direction of the show and what are people watching and, you know, how do people feel when they see you trying to tackle every single like topic and obstacle that you come across? Um, that's not, you know, see, again, CNN does a really good job of that. I didn't want to compete with CNN. Um, right. I wanted to create something that was that was kind of timeless in in a, in a sense. <clears throat> yeah, so almost trying to to capture a vignette of what was going on, rather than trying to show the whole picture, just portray what was in front of you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's kind of where we stand on on how we how we go about mm. our filming and stuff. I was wondering if we could go back, um, you know, because we, we talked a little about a little bit about your filming, but you worked hard to create a career for yourself, you know, in, in journalism through photography, and then you know the financial crisis comes along, and for, from what I've read, you know, your your career was kind of derailed. Sure, that that must have been pretty, you know, it's been, that was a tough time for so so many people. Um, and yet you seem to rebound and a few years later you were in TV establishing yourself as a, as a, a, a adventure documentary producer. Sure. Yeah. So that, that transition was terrible. <laughs> that transition was terrible. Right. And, and, you know, this is the facing up to challenges, you know, part of your podcast that people might just be interested in is because, you know, again, in, you know, I had my best, I was a freelance photographer and a freelance writer. And that's, that's, you know, you're working in the gig economy and you get paid per publication, you get paid per photograph or whatever. And in 2006, 2007 and 2008, China was the best place to be in the world because it was the build up to the Beijing Olympics in August, 2008. 
And this was going to be a huge coming out party for China. And every newspaper and magazine in the world wanted a China story. So I was working almost every day for three straight years going into August 20, uh, 2008. And it was incredible. Like I could not have chosen a better country to work in to launch my career. Right. And, and I think it's important to know, like I, I, I am where I am today because I moved to China when I was young. I had no debt. China, the living costs in China when I moved there were very, very small. Now they're different, but when I moved there originally, and I could take the risk and build my career without having the financial burden of living in a place like London, England, or New York in the USA or something like that. Mm. So I was able to keep my costs really low. And then also because of the interest in China with the build up to the Olympics, I was working a ton. And I was able to make a lot of money and save a lot of money. And, and, and my name was everywhere. I was, I, was, I was loving it. Actually, if that had continued, I might have never done television. Like that was, you know, apart from just the negativity of it all. But, uh, but uh, it, was a good, it was a good life. Uh, and, and then in 2008, we had the Olympics. And then in September 2008, Lehman's Brothers, the U.S. investment bank, went bankrupt. And it caused the housing crisis and the financial crisis. And of course, you know, millions of people lost their homes and jobs and it devastated financially. Um, but one of, the, one of the side effects of that was it also wiped out the publishing industry. Now, the publishing industry was already on its way out because everything was moving online. Uh, all the ad sales and all the uh, classified ads were moving online. So those were the big earners for newspapers. So yeah, so you know, by 2009, I wasn't working at all like zero, um, after having like three or four of the best years of my life. So it was, uh, it was a huge wake up call. So I decided that if I was going to keep making any content, um, and I still wanted to, I still wanted to travel and meet people and see the world that I, I was going to make travel content and, and make video and make television shows. And, um, and making that transition was very hard because like I said earlier, it's a very small circle of people that that broadcasters would like to work with. And if you don't have anything with your name on it, that's out in the market, you know, people just don't take a lot of risk because the money is huge, you know, to, to sell a photograph, maybe it's a hundred dollars or a few hundred dollars to, you know, a day rate for a photographer might be a few hundred dollars, but to make a television show is, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the, the scale of what's going on is much more intense. So the, the risk uh, is much higher. So it's just a much, much more difficult industry to break into. So how and it was did you, and it was terrible. <laughs> yeah. So um, can you just take us through? I mean, this I feel this is the sort of the crux of the the podcast. The bit that someone says that bit was really tough, and then they skip forward like two years to when they'd made it. Like, can you just take us through? Like, what? How did you actually approach the challenge of getting into an industry that you presumably didn't really know that much about? Yeah, you had a bit of background in kind of journalism in general. But, you know, your revenue had dried up. Your identity as a photographer was in, in, in tatters, perhaps. How do you kind of even set a direction at that point? Yeah, it was, it was a directionless period of time. And uh, it was very, very hard to, like, figure out how to navigate. Because the, 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 there's two things you learn in, in entertainment. Number one is no one helps you. Okay. <laughs> no one helps you. Uh, and, the, and the second thing is, is that it's very hard to identify a role model because everyone's journey through entertainment is totally different. 
Like, you know, people can, people can look at famous podcasters. Like you pick the top five most downloaded podcasts in the world. Each one of those people has a totally different background and they built up their following and for their podcasts in completely different ways. There's no model to follow. Um, and you can't just go to someone and ask for a job. So, you know, so I, I thought to myself, again, I, I've always been a fairly confident person. I just felt like I could do it. And I, I kind of had watched a lot of TV and I kind of understood, <laughs> I understood how things came together. And it's funny, like, um, uh, you know, you just, you just have to go out and do these trips. So no one wanted to work with us. No one wanted to fund us. No corporate partners wanted to sponsor us. I still have all the rejection letters from like all the big broadcasters around the world, many of who I work with now. Okay. Um, Cause they didn't want to touch what I was trying to do at the beginning. Cause you were some uh, so unknown I, guy. Yeah. Just That's how everyone starts unknown. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> everyone, Tell me know, about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the first, the first step is, you know, the first step is the hardest step and the first step is it lasts 10 years. Like that's why any, you know, if you want to get into this kind of business, you have to be, really kind of dedicated to being in it for the long haul. Cause if you're just doing it for a year or two, um, you know, you won't, you don't get anywhere. So, uh, so yeah, making that transition was hard. And the way we did it was I just really believed in the project. And uh, this was the, so this was the tough rides, China, my brother and I, me have, having worked in the, uh, uh, journalism world for so long, I, I really wanted to show a different side of China, a side that wasn't being portrayed in the media. And what I wanted to do was ride a motorcycle the whole way around China and um, because I would show people all the different ethnicities and the minorities and the beauty of the landscape and the co different cultures and show them all the things that I felt were being kind of left out. And it's, you know, it's something that no one's really done before at that time. So I thought it was quite bold. And I thought that the boldness of the idea would lead to money coming in, but it didn't. Um, right. But uh, so we, yeah, so my brother and I, we funded it ourselves. And uh, we made the show ourselves, and uh, which isn't something that everyone can do, and I appreciate that. But it, you know, it was something that I could do, um, and decided that it was a, a worthwhile investment. And you know, some people go to business school, you know, and spend thirty thousand or fifty thousand dollars a year going to business school for a year or two. Well, I put that money into my first television production, and um, and I learned on the job. And that was 10 years ago. And now I'm a producer, director and travel host. And I've made more than like 50 hours of television. So it's just like, where do you want to, you know, do you, do you believe in yourself to put your money in your own career, I suppose? That's a really interesting comparison with uh, business school. I hadn't thought about it like that or, before. Or film, or film school right. or whatever. I think the only one you can't get away with is medical school. You can't be like, I'm just going to figure out how to, you know, <laughs> you kind of have to go to, you kind of have to go to medical school. But, you know, if you're an entrepreneur and you've got ideas, hmm. you know, you don't have to go to business school. I mean, hmm. if, 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 if you're a filmmaker and you're already making films and you already have ideas and you know how to edit and use cameras and create a narrative, you don't have to go to film school. Like, you, you know, it, so it's just about where you want to put your money. And a lot of people, I think a lot of people are really insecure and they feel like the more education they have, the better off they'll be. And I think that's true for some people. And, and if you need that, then you go for it. But I knew right away that more education was never going to help me. Like when I graduated from the University of Toronto and I'm very thankful for my education and I'm very thankful for my time there. But at the same time as when I finished my basketball career, I also finished my university and, and I knew I was done with, with, you know, with um, structured education. Like I knew I was finished with it. And I knew that what I needed to learn was out in the world. 
and and that's kind of where I charted my path and that's and I taught myself how to write and I taught myself how to take photographs and won some awards and again I just taught myself how to produce television shows and and luckily I could look at the camera and deliver some lines without stuttering or or stumbling and I just just went with it and um yeah and, and here we are that um it's something that I've uh, you know thought a lot about. You know, I've been attracted by the idea of say business school, uh, and you know, setting up my own business. And so the first step is naturally to get a degree. But I think what you're showing, and and um, say Joe Daniels, who was on the podcast uh, recently, he didn't go to business school. He set up his own business because he believed in the idea. And it does, I think, these masters programs or you know business school, film school, they provide this kind of safety net. Uh, one interpretation could be that they provide this safety net that says, you know, I'm making progress in this direction, but without really jumping in and forcing yourself to sink or swim. It's kind of quite a safe way of doing it. And maybe it is the most effective way for some people. But if you've put your life savings into something, you're probably going to be pretty damn keen to make sure it goes well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was ch I was chatting with a, a friend yesterday, uh, Scott Wilson, and he's a television producer and television presenter as well. And he's like, at a certain stage, you know, your resume and, and your certificates don't matter. It's all about what you make. And, yeah. you know, we, we live in a world where we live in a world now where we have all the tools to make whatever we need to make um, because of our technology that we've created and, and that allows us to have this chat today. And, and, you know, we can make whatever we need to make. So don't show me certificates, show me what you can make. And if you're passionate about it and the stuff you're making is good, let's have a talk. And, and that's, that's kind of how you do business. And that's kind of where, where we are in the entertainment world is just is, you know, I don't want to see pieces of paper with your name on it. Show me what you can make uh, and show me that we can go into battle together for 60 days or 90 days or a year and come out with something that we can share with the world and they'll like it. You know, that's what, that's what it takes. I've never, you know, I, I've, I have six people that work for me. I've never asked. To, I don't even, I do know three of them went to NYU, which is a very good film school. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I hired one of them when he, while he was still a student um, just cause I thought he was open-minded and I liked him. And, and, um, and the other one, you know, the other one wrote me directly and said, can I have coffee with you? I really like what you do. And, and he went to NYU, but even if he'd gone to another school, I still would have met him for coffee. Uh, and again, it's just like a personal connection. So yeah, I don't know. You just got to put yourself out there, man. That's, I just, I really, like you said, you can really kind of hide uh, if you stay in, in higher education for too long. And I think that, uh, uh, you know, you really have to step out into the void because whenever you do that, the energy around you will change and it might be negative and it might be positive. That's called risk. But if you don't step out into the void, you never change the energy. And if you don't change the energy, you're never going to progress or advance or grow. You're just going to stay static. And that sucks. I, I think that's, that's really true. I, I can think back to um, my first, in some ways, my first bit of very independent professional work when I was, I was working with, um, this uh, plant scientist who said, can you, can you, can you write a chapter on quinoa and like, it's kind of genetics that kind of make it resistant to like drought and salt tolerance and heat. And I was, you know, and that was a big decision point. Cause I was like, I don't know anything about quinoa. Like, you know, I've got a degree in biology, but like, 
you know, but at some point you just have to say yes and I'll figure it out. You know, like yes, and I'm going to take responsibility for making it happen however, however I get there. And to me, that's been, I'm still very much learning that lesson. But to me, that's, yeah. that's the sort of lesson that you can't get from university. No. And it's so it valuable. I mean, yeah, I mean, Richard Branson, who's a, a great kind of uh, uh, entrepreneur and, and built up several big businesses and things like that. He said, anytime someone asks you something that you don't know how to do, you say yes and you figure it out. And that is how you build businesses and that is how you create a name for yourself. And I think that's always, you know, great advice and, and, and do things that scare you. Right. You know, do things that make you feel uncomfortable and living with that discomfort is called growing. Living with that discomfort is called, you know, progression. And I think that, you know, all of us want to create this little safe bubble that we can live in. And, but, and then you, and then you complain when every day is the same and it's just groundhog day again and again and again, and you're caught on the, you know, the treadmill of life and every day is the same. It's like, well, you, you set yourself up like that. You wanted that comfort and you wanted that safety net and now you've got it and now you're, you know, now you're complaining about it. Um, you, you know, if you want to take risks and you want to create things and, and whatnot, you have to create a life around that and, uh, and be conscious of it and, and plan for it. So what's the, um, what is the thing that you've most recently done that has put you in a whole world of discomfort and maybe caused you to grow a little bit along the way? Um, well, I just started my own podcast. So, <laughs> you know, I, uh, uh, you know, it's, I'm a, you know, you're a public figure. You're, you, you're, you know, you're on television shows all around the world and stuff like that. And, and I decided I wanted to make my first podcast where I interview myself. Uh, and, and I was brutally honest, uh, about failures, um, about mistakes, um, about being selfish, uh, about being too driven maybe and too business focused or too career focused. And, uh, and I kind of just forced myself to open up through that and I was terrified and then I put it out into the world and, um, and that was kind of scary because, you know, people might think differently of me. They might think that I'm not the person they see on TV or, or, or whatever, but I think it's also, I just want to be really authentic and, and, you know, I am a person who's on TV and I also have, you know, lots of doubt and fear, but I, I embrace that doubt and fear because I think that's where, that's where you can overcome you know, your weaknesses and, and really make something happen. So I'm really happy with the feedback and I'm really happy with the process and I'm enjoying it and, uh, and we'll see where it takes us. Great. Um, can you give us a little bit of a, since we're on the topic of the podcast, can you give us a little bit of a synopsis of what it's going to be like? And I'll, I'll put the, the link in the um, podcast description. So if anyone's interested, do check Ryan's <laughs> podcast out, but give us, give us the elevator pitch for it. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's called the Ryan Pyle Podcast. It's a very creative podcast name. It took a long time I to come it. up with. I love it. Um, and and it's basically just uh, one episode is just going to be me riffing on kind of topics that I choose, and uh, the next episode will be a guest where I, I I interview someone who I've come across in my travels or has had an interesting career or is someone who's creative. And the goal for me is to do all the podcasts face to face because I feel like which is difficult in these times. Right. Um, but I feel like the face-to-face -face, uh, podcast is where you can generate a lot of, you know, really unique energy. And so um, I'm working on that. Yeah. Nice. Um, I'm really looking forward to, to listening to it. Um, Thank so you. I will, yeah, let, let you know. I'm um, excited yes. to hear all those topics. Um, 
you were talking a bit about the environment, um, you know, putting yourself in an environment of discomfort. And something I've been thinking about quite a bit is, you know, the sort of, you, know, the, you kind of reflect the five people that you're around most. It's sort of one sort of generic rule of thumb. Um, uh, could you tell us maybe, and I guess this kind of maybe links in a bit with role models, are the, who are the people who you look up to or you feel chat who challenge you and you know how do they challenge you how do they bring out the best in you yeah um you know i don't have a lot of i don't have a lot of role models um sadly i mean i like i like people who do tough things but they're not always people that other people really know about so um you know i just get inspired by people i meet along the way you know i had this i mean i had this guide in in nepal i was filming in nepal a few years ago and we were up in the Mustang kingdom along the border with Tibet and my guide, his name was, um, uh, Nima and he was a Sherpa and, and he was just this super quiet, super humble, super wonderful Nepalese man, but he'd summited Everest five times. And, okay. and, you know, he'd spent like 20 years working on the mountain and, and now he was kind of like retired from the high climbing and now he was just <laughs> leading treks and stuff like that. Right. And we just had a wonderful chat and he was so humble and so sweet. And here he is, you know, five time Everest climber. No one knows anything about him. He doesn't have an Instagram account and he just goes along with his life and feeds his kids and takes care of his wife. And I was, that was just so humbling. And, um, Whereas, you know, if, if, you know, if some American, for example, uh, had climbed Everest five times or something like that, then, you know, he'd have like half a million Instagram followers and he'd be on television every couple of days and giving talks and, and building out this whole like personality business around climbing Everest five times. Right. But actually, I was just kind of enjoying, you know, Nima Sherpa's company when we were walking through the beautiful uh, mountains and valleys of the Mustang Kingdom and, and he was a five-time Everest climber and, and, and had helped countless people up. Forget about just summoning yourself. He's the one, you know, carrying the, the wealthy Western businessman up Everest uh, as well as summoning himself. So, right. you know, these people are heroes, man. And, um, I, you know, I meet people like this all the time. Like I was filming in China uh, and we, we, we trekked across the Badain Jarain Desert in Inner Mongolia in China. And it was like 150 kilometers through this desert. And we had, 16, we had a 16 camel caravan. And my guide's name was Hasamong. And he was a local guy. He lived in the desert. Um, he raised camels. They were his camels we took across the desert. And every day he would, you know, get the camels ready, load up 16 camels of gear. And he wouldn't let us do it because the camels were crazy. They would kick and they would bite. And they always, he always told us to stay away from the camels. So we couldn't help him. So it was him and, and two people who worked with him. And the, the three of them would load up these camels every morning. Then we would go like 20, 25 kilometers through the desert. Then they would unload all the camels, you know, prepare a food tent, prepare a dinner. And it was like clockwork every day for like 12 days or something like that. And these guys just worked so hard and they were just so used to it and they loved it and they loved being out in the desert. And, and I was just like, God, that's just so inspiring um, to, to kind of have the chance to walk in their shoes. And, you know, this is why I travel. These are the kinds of experiences that kind of motivate me. I mean, I could say, I could tell you I watched, you know, Long Way Round, Long Way Down and, uh, and you know, Charlie Borman and Ewan McGregor looked like they had fun. So I decided to make a motorcycle show also. Right. That's, that's true. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, they didn't, 
they didn't inspire me. They just kind of made, they just kind of showed everyone how much fun a motorcycle trip is. And then I wanted to do one too. And I kind of did it a little bit differently. Yeah. But, but people who inspire me, I mean, you inspire me. I mean, we had a first conversation and you blew me away with your own life story and how you've overcome so much adversity at such a young age. So, Mm. you know, you find inspiration from everywhere, but there's no, there's no other person in television that, that whose career I would love to have. Right. I'm quite interested here that um, you're saying that in some ways, and I'm being a little bit, little bit provocative, you get all, all the credit, you know, you're this amazing adventurer going off doing these, these treks, doing these hardcore things, but actually it sounds like the real hardcore people are, it's, it's not you, it's not the white guy who gets his like, stuff carried, who you know, has a home to go back to in, in Shanghai or Dubai or wherever. Um, the real stars of the show, are, you know, it, it's, it's not you, it's, it's these other people. Like, how do you deal with, um, um, I guess, you know, on one hand, you're the center of attention, I suppose. Um, but also you're probably quite aware. You seem like a pretty conscientious guy that, um, you're very lucky to be doing these things in the first place. And what you're doing for fun is someone else's life. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, so, so one of the things we do with the show is we always film the guide and he is always getting kind of equal time with me on air. So he is essentially the second presenter. So I never, ever, ever uh, make people think like I'm out there by myself. Mm-hmm. That's not what we do. So the guide is always part of the show. He's always leading me. He's always teaching me about the local culture and how to deal with the landscape. Uh, uh, and that's just the way I feel is the safest way to travel. Um, but it's also the kind of person I am and the kind of person I want to be on television. Mm. And, and we always film the guides. We always film the porters. We always film them doing all the hard work. And I always tell the audience that these guys are the real stars and I'm just lucky to be here and, and be able to talk about it. And, um, and you know, that's, you know, that's the kind of authenticity that we try to, try to bring to the show. And that's, that's just who I am. That's my tone. Um, you know, I have an Instagram account with a lot of followers and I do do talks all around the world and I'm on TV all the time as well. And that for me, all of that has to get done so that I can spend more time in the middle of the desert with Hasamong and his 16 camels. And that's what gets me to those places. Um, and, Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what, those are the moments I really cherish. If there was an episode that, exemplifies what you've just talked about most of all which would you recommend that i and anyone else interested watches um well i think i think you know the there's an episode of extreme treks season three uh where we climb aconcagua you know in argentina which is the highest mountain in south america at seven thousand meters above sea level and i'm not a mountain climber um mm-hmm. I'm just a guy who really likes being outside and really likes adventure and, but I'm not a professional climber. So what I did was I found like one of the best climbers in the world. Um, and you know, convinced him to lead me up the mountain and he got me up to the top and it it wasn't a triumphant 
I'm at the top, I made it, I'm the king of the world kind of moment. Like I was struggling and we filmed the whole thing, man. And I, yeah. I like, there was a time where he was like, I didn't think you were going to make it. And right. you know, I was like, I didn't think I was going to make it either. And, <laughs> and, um, and you know, it, it, you know, when I'm sitting there and I can't breathe, we're filming it. When I'm sitting there and I'm mm. running, we're filming it. Like, you mm. know, we just try to do the story uh, as much real justice as, as we can. But, but again, you know, climbing Aconcagua scared the hell out of me. And it's something I didn't think I was comfortable doing, but I thought we should try and, and mm. then we'll know, right? And, and mm. that's, again, living with the discomfort, you know, altitude sickness. It was minus 40 degrees Celsius when we went for the summit in the morning. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. And I, I loved it. And, uh, and, and the great thing about Aconcagua was is that I guess when we were there, which was quite late in the season, it was, it was pretty quiet on the mountain. There weren't a lot of people. So um, it was really lovely. And, um, Max, my guide saved my life multiple times and, and, you know, kept me motivated and, and without him, I wouldn't have made it up the mountain for sure. So, and we had, and we had like 10 porters as well. We filmed all them carrying all our camera gear up and down the mountain. So, I mean, we, you know, we want, I want people to see what it takes to film in these locations um, okay. and try to make that as authentic as possible. So I hope people appreciate it because you don't get to see a lot of that on TV. Um, and yeah, that's why I that's why I produce my own shows too, is because I get to say what we show and what we don't, and that stuff's really important. Right. So, you are now really established as uh, you know, a television presenter, as producing your own shows. You do get the opportunity to travel the world, give talks, have adventures. From the outside, this seems. Yeah, as I said, anything in the introduction, like an, an idyllic lifestyle, right? Sure. W what are the challenges that go with it? Um, you know, it's hard being on the move all the time. Uh, you know, it might seem glamorous. We're talking about a, a pre-COVID-19 world, right? Okay. We're talking, yeah. about, we're talking <laughs> about 2019, 2018, you know, traveling 250 to 300 days a year. Um, wow. You know, That's I... Yeah, it's a lot. It's um, your airfares must be horribly expensive, and your carbon footprint. Not that I'm going to go eco war on you right now, but like, that's intense. Yeah, yeah, it is. And you know, I, I hope that the that the carbon footprint is a little better off because I do spend like ten or fourteen days living in a tent without any electricity, uh, <laughs> walking every yeah. month. So um, <laughs> and that's how I hope my my carbon footprint uh, is managed a little bit um, with the flying, but. You know, it's it's hard being on the road all the time. Uh, you definitely lose a lot. There is cost to it. You know, you're you maybe you pay for an apartment or a home that you're never in. Um, it's hard to keep relationships with people who don't live similar lifestyles because you just have less to talk about with them. Like uh, and and uh, and just relationships with people, um, boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, they deteriorate for sure if you happen to be in this kind of work because it's just hard to juggle everything um you know when you are the product uh it's it's just you're on all the time and um and you're constantly pushing yourself and your work and uh and for other people who don't know what that feels like it's it's not something that they can deal with very easily i think so that's why you know i think a lot of people who are in the same industry like this kind of end up together maybe perhaps just because it's a, it's kind of a, a strange mentality to have um, where you're the product all the time and, and you have to be pushing yourself all the time because at the end of the day, 
you know, Discovery Channel or in BBC and all these people, like they don't give me an annual salary. Like I have to, I have to be out there making stuff and, and putting myself out there to make sure people watch the shows and things like that so that I can have those beautiful nights watching the sunset in the desert with Hasamong in, in Western China mm, with his right. 16 camels. And that's, that's the kind of the, the, the part of the business that goes with it. And, and it's, yeah, it's incredibly hard. A lot of people, a lot of people gain a lot of weight in my, in my business just because they're traveling so much and they eat really terribly. Right. But I'm lucky because I think my shows are really, really physical okay. and, uh, and it's kind of kept, kept some of the bad habits down. But it's definitely hard. It definitely costs a lot of your personal relationships go out the window, for sure. Is that because you're? Is that because you simply don't have the time, or is that because you're not? Um, uh, you're constantly at a distance, or is it because of the the different experiences, or is it because actually you find that you're so different from everyone else? You know, you're, you're all of the above, like. All of the above, I think. I think you're just having such different experiences from people. It becomes hard to relate to a normal life again. Mm. You know, uh, I it's. I think it's just hard. And also, too, a lot of people don't understand this, but like when I'm filming, like last year I filmed 10 episodes in 10 months. So I had to do 10 expeditions in 10 months. So that means that for... For 14 days out of every month, uh, one of our episodes is about 10 to 14 days of filming where we do these big expeditions. So that means for 10 to 14 days out of every month, I'm essentially offline. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I come back online, then I have two weeks to do four weeks worth of work. Mm. And I have like 2000 emails in my inbox and my phone is blowing up and, and it's just like, okay, what fires do I have to put out now? for work and then and then it's like okay then you're getting back to some friends are like hey let's watch the basketball game on saturday and it's like i'm i'm in oman i'm not any like you just can't even reply as you do because you just you, are. you just don't yeah it's just like hey let's get together on sunday and like watch the cricket match or go to the rugby or whatever mm-hmm. and and you're just like i'm in jordan next week and i don't know when i'll ever you know be able to sit down and watch anything again or something like that so just these you know, it just, it creates a distance, I think, between, I think it can be very isolating, actually. I think it creates a distance between yourself and, and a lot of society. And I, f- I feel like maybe a lot of people in entertainment maybe feel the same way in some, some sense as well, because you're, you're, you've removed yourself from, you know, the everyday life of, of so many people. It's strange. Do you feel lonely? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. You do. Um, I think because there's very few people who can understand what you're going through. Um, the constant insecurity, uh, is unbelievable because you're just, you never know where your next job is coming from. Even if you've just won an Oscar, for example, you still really never know where your next job is coming from. Mm -hmm. And you're only as good as your last, whatever you created. So, so, you know, I'm launching a show right now in Asia with discovery channel called expedition Asia. And I think it's going well and I'm really proud of the show. But if people hate it, I'm not going to get a season two. And then I need to figure out what I'm going to do with my crew. Um, mm. And these things are constantly in my mind. Mm. And, um, and it, uh, it, yeah, it, sounds it can, like it can a, be a little lonely. It sounds like there's a huge tension between self-value and you being proud of what you've created and the reality that if other people don't like what you've created, you don't have a job. 
Well, that's the shit of being an artist, man. Like that's the, that's the bitch of it all. Like, you know, you can spend, you can spend five years making a sculpture and you'll think it's your own, you know, David and, yeah. you know, and, and then people, and then you present it to people and they, and they hate it. Like that's, that's the risk of, of putting your heart and soul into something. And that's the risk of going out into the void and, and changing the energy around you because you never know what people are going to think. And it's mm. terrifying. Like when you make a film, you're, imagine people who spend years making feature films, big budget feature films with huge actors and blah, blah, blah. And then it comes out and people hate it and it makes no money. Um, like it's cats. terrifying because you, yeah, like you think you did something good, right? And you're proud of what you did. And then you show it to people and, it, and, they, and it's terrible. And that's, mm. that's the rub of being an artist. That's the rub of being in the public sphere. And when it goes right, it really goes right. And when it goes wrong, it's like, oh, like you just want to hide. Um, but then you have to get out and do it again. Mm. And that's the really hard part. Like when you've just put out something that's terrible and then, and then you got to go back and, and, and motivate yourself to do it again at the same energy level and the same, you know, devotion to the product. It's, um, uh, it's, mm. it's, it's constantly terrifying. How, how do you do that? Can you give us an, I don't know. Is there an example of a, something that you've produced that hadn't gone as well as you'd liked? And then you were, very deflated and then had to pick yourself up again? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I think, I think the, the problems that I've had in my career haven't necessarily been with the audience. Like I feel like people for the most part like my shows. Um, there's always negative comments on YouTube and, you know, Amazon prime and all this kind of stuff. People think, Oh, this is terrible. Um, Too many whys in this guy's name. Yeah, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, one, you know, one guy, one guy gave me a one star out of like five on Amazon Prime because he said my motorcycle show didn't focus enough on the motorcycles because it was because it was a travel show about Brazil, right? Uh, and we met people all around Brazil right. and we learned about their lives. And yeah. so you can never make anyone happy, but so everyone happy. But the point is, is that when it's done, you're happy mm. and you have to be the barometer for your own success. And if it flies, it flies. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. Where, mm. where I've had real difficulties with, with broadcast executives because they just move around so much and it's hard to maintain momentum uh, when people are moving and jumping to different companies and when, and when you're dealing with new people all the time. Because as a television presenter, my face is on my product mm. and I'm producing something with my face on it. And and I have a tone and a way of living that I want to show in my, in my show. And I don't want to change that or, you know, add in, f you know, sensationalized moments or fake drama or, you know, give people ADD by watching my show because the, we're changing the, you know, the pictures every three, you know, two seconds. I want people to sit with the show and really feel it and, and really understand where I'm coming from as a storyteller. And, and a lot of people don't want to buy into that, especially people who have just come across uh, from a new company or they just got their job and they want, to, they, they want to change everything. And that's where I you know, find it difficult to maintain control over kind of what I'm doing. So that's where, that's where the real challenge has been, less with the audience, I think. Okay. I'm also interested in this, this challenge of you're, you said you're always on, like, you know, you're, you're the face of your programs, you are the product, but it, it's not just the filming, like it's, it's social media, like you're pretty much every day you're posting something on Instagram or, or Facebook. 
Every day I'm doing a one hour interview with someone on, on, on Instagram. Right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, we've done, I've done like more than 50 of them now. So it, yeah, you're, you're constantly on, you're constantly creating. I actually like that. I actually like being busy. I'm lucky that I have a job that I don't feel like I'm actually working. I love communicating with people. I love having this talk with you. This is not work. This is two friends catching up. Like I love replying to everyone on social media. I love it when people dedicate time to my content and Mm -hmm. tell me that they like it. Like that just motivates me to keep doing it more and making it, trying to make it as best as I can. Like all that stuff is not a burden. Um, But um, I I really enjoy kind of being on and, and, and being engaged with the audience in a meaningful way. Does that mean you're constantly on your phone? Because this is something I've noticed. Um, I tried to sort of cut down my phone consumption as much as possible. But you know, when you're, you know, you've got what ninety thousand followers on Instagram, you're going to get what like five thousand seems quite a typical number of like likes and kind of comments on your posts. Like your phone is going to be going off the whole time. Like how do you get stuff done? Like how do you switch off? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you. I mean, you try to reply to as many people as you can, and but you also try to not let it take up your whole day. Um, mm. Obviously, now we're all kind of on lockdown and not working, so I'm definitely on social media much more now than normally. Um, and don't forget too, like I don't mind, I don't mind doing a lot of the social media work because I spend you know ten to fourteen days offline every month, or at least I did when I was filming, and that was a great balance for me. So I loved. I love turning off the phone for 14 days and not having a computer and just filming and capturing stories and understanding people's lives. And then when I came back on, I was excited to see what everyone was saying and, and, you know, and, and reconnect with everyone online. And that was part of the enjoyment of coming back to the real world. But then by the time I went out again, I was ready to leave the phone behind and, okay. and detox, digital detox. And how do you relax? Like, how do you by, find by this working, balance? By working. Okay. Right. I, I spend 10 to 14 days working every month and mm-hmm. I sleep in a tent and I walk 20 kilometers a day. And mm-hmm. that is the most relaxing thing I can do. And I'll tell you, man, I sleep better when I'm out working and sleeping in a tent and out in nature with no communication with anyone else. I sleep like a baby. I come back from filming so well rested to deal with the bullshit of our society and the cities and the way of life and the travel and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, my, 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 my sweet spot is being out in the wild working and I don't feel tired when I come back from any, any shoot. I just feel like I'm ready to take on, you know, the next challenge and I'm lucky like that. I I absolutely love it. Right. That's, that's very insightful that the, the expeditions, which a lot of people might've thought are the tough bits uh, when you're, you're, you're slogging it. That's actually, your your downtime the time to recharge the batteries even though you're on camera and having to do pieces to camera i i again like i'm just i don't get stressed by it and i feel very comfortable doing it and i i feel the the whole style of the show is i'm out on a great adventure and i'm loving it and you know when i'm out there my my two friends chad and jesse are filming me chad's my director of photography chad ingram and jesse rosenberg is my second camera operator and we're out on a on a great adventure. And when I'm talking, I'm when I'm talking to the audience, I'm just talking to them. And I'm like, yes. this is amazing. Like, can you believe we're doing this? Like, look at that view, or like, look at this, or yes. you know, you gotta, and it's 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 easy uh, for me. I'm very lucky in that sense, I guess. But it's never work. And I think it's that not. sounds like the 
I mean, that's the ideal, isn't it? You know, you, the, the thing that gets you money and get, allows you to live a lifestyle that you enjoy is also the thing that you do enjoy. Um, we've, we've talked a lot about challenges and some of the difficulties in your job. I just thought to, to end, um, I know that you're a big fan of whiskey and I'm, <laughs> you, you're doing like your whiskey Wednesdays and stuff, but what, what is your favorite whiskey? So uh, I try not to mention any brands because I don't work with any brands and I, I quite like oh. a few different brands, but oh, I, I will right. tell you right. that uh, <laughs> I am a whiskey snob. I am indeed. And I really, really love single malt whiskey from the Scottish Highlands. So okay. that could be the West, Western Isles yeah. or Speyside. Okay. Those are, my, those are my two places. And you can, you can, there's about 50 distilleries in those areas that I mentioned. And they're all the big ones, McAllen, Glenfiddich, Glenlivet, Bamore, um, uh, Belvani, uh, Lagvulin, Lafroig, like they, there's, they're all in that area. And those are, those are my, uh, my favorites. I don't really like blended whiskeys. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't like, uh, I'm not a, a gin guy or, a, or anything like that. I really, really just love pure Scottish single malt whiskey. <laughs> okay but hard to draw on exactly which one, but I've got some, she got some Lafroy right behind me in my room. So oh, um, do you? Yeah, I do. Well, um, I well done. Out, well done. I could pass yes. it across the screen, but uh. <laughs> well, well yeah. I'll be in the UK someday. We will have a drink together when all of this has cleared up and we're back to our quote unquote normal lives, hopefully soon. Yeah. I, I'm looking forward to that very much, Ryan. Um, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed chatting. Thank you so much for having me. And anytime you want me back, I'm here. And I think what you're doing is amazing. And uh, you're bringing out some great stories and some incredible people. So uh, the thanks goes to you. Such as you. And um, yeah, looking forward to chatting some more in future and hearing more of your podcast and actually um, watching some more of your stuff as well. And I'm going to start with, what is it? Extreme Treks Season 3 in Argentina. There you go. Nice. Thanks so much, Ryan. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was my chat with Ryan Pyle, the adventurer and TV producer. I really hope that you enjoyed it. In fact, after having this chat with Ryan, I... Uh, my mum got uh, the free trial to Amazon Prime and we went and uh, watched some of his extreme treks and we watched one of him going around the mountain in Tibet. And it was really interesting because I was like, okay, so where's where's the political element here? When are we going to hear about some of the tensions? Um, and it never came up. Big spoiler. But it was really interesting reflecting upon it and it's actually like, well, Ryan was taking what he saw in front of him and wasn't introducing other narratives when they didn't come when he didn't come across them and that might be an approach that works for some people and not others but if it sounds like it's something that would work for you then do check out his shows they are good fun to watch and thank you for listening to the facing up podcast if you enjoyed this and even if you didn't i would still really appreciate it if you could tell your friends your family and anyone else that you know about the facing up podcast if you think that they will benefit from it i'm really passionate about try and help as many people as possible live their lives in in the face of challenges um, and with the mindset that will help hopefully each and every one of us make the most of our time alive. So please do share it, rate Facing Up on iTunes and 
spread the message. I hope you all have a really good week and take care.